In a city of three million, it could be easy to feel lost, to always be busy and online while never really being connected. 312, Park Near North's Young Adult Ministry is focused on developing community and discipleship for young adults in Chicago. We'd love for you to join us, whether you're single, married, or dating, and take part in one of our monthly events or semi-annual retreats to build a community of fellowship that helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus. 312, knowing God and making God known in Chicago and to the ends of the earth. Welcome to 312, our official relaunch. Um, and as Josh was saying, first three months, we're opening up with a series called Created For, which is really a combination of a couple of different ideas. First off, that uh, the God that the scriptures reveal is triune and has always been so, meaning for all of eternity, God has existed uh, in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So eternally existing in the context of a loving community, in relationship, right? Uh, and scriptures also say that we are created in the image of this God. And the combination of these two different ideas leads us to the conclusion that fundamentally, we too are created for relationships that were designed and meant to find our flourishing in relationships. And that's really the kind of the big idea for the series. And so for the next three months, we're going to be looking at some of the most crucial relationships that we experience in this life and just kind of asking, how do we navigate these well as followers of Jesus? So uh, when we get to December, we're going to be looking at family. Uh, next month in November, we're going to be looking into romance from a variety of angles. So that one should be interesting, should be fun. And then this, this uh, month, we're kicking things off with the subject of friendship. And specifically, we're looking into three common friendship myths that a lot of us uh, live and are shaped by, and even kind of the way that we navigate relationships. These are things that we feel, uh, but ultimately, they're not helpful, and they're not biblical. And so the hope is that in kind of debunking these, it'll allow us to move towards a better understanding uh, of what friendship is and how we can navigate friendship well um, and biblically. So, so that's what we're looking to do tonight. So looking forward to, to tearing into some of these myths a little bit. So uh, the first one is just this. And just for reference, too, uh, there's a couple of sheets on each of your tables that have the three myths at, uh, at the very top of the paper. So if uh, I say it and you kind of miss it, just know you've got that as a reference. So the first myth is this. You should connect with everyone. You should connect with everyone. And just in kind of parsing this out, this myth is harmful uh, in a couple of different ways. Because uh, first off, this is kind of what leads us to believe and to feel that we must be available to everyone always. That, that we should connect with everyone. And so what follows from that is that we should be available to everyone always for the sake of connecting with them. And so if we get invited out for coffee or to a birthday party or to brunch or whatever it happens to be, if there's nothing else on our calendar, there's kind of this feeling like, well, we have to go, right? That it's in some way wrong to say no to a social invitation if we're able to go. We feel that inside. And so we follow that feeling and often say yes uh, to every single invitation with the result that we end up kind of left feeling overextended, exhausted, and at the end of the day, still reeling with this sense of loneliness, and to kind of use an analogy, the person who, you know, when you eat a meal, if you end up overeating and kind of going beyond what would kind of be like a healthy amount, 
uh, and going way overboard, you, you're not left afterwards feeling a sense of wholeness or a sense of uh, satisfaction or even feeling good, right? Because a binge doesn't leave you feeling whole. And honestly, the same is true relationally. But what this myth leads us to do is to kind of approach relationships from that type of standpoint where we end up uh, overextending ourselves. So that's the first side of the coin. Then the other side is this, is that when the invitations are not necessarily just flying in like crazy, we don't know what to do with them, but when they're not coming uh, at all, or at least not from everyone. And a lot of times we end up feeling bothered by that because, you know, we jump on Instagram or Facebook and we see our friends are going out to eat or they take this trip together or, or whatever they end up doing. We, we see that they're connecting in some way without us. And it leads us to ask the question, well, why didn't they ask us? Why didn't the invitation come my direction? And a lot of times we're bothered by this because the underlying belief is that we should connect with everyone. And so therefore we should be a part of every social gathering, of every opportunity to connect, which uh, I think when we know, when we state it out clearly, it just isn't true. Because if you just kind of take, for example, if we really were invited to all of the things that we feel left out of, if we actually got an invitation to every single one of those things and were to go to them, that wouldn't leave us feeling whole. Right? That would just leave us feeling disconnected, drained, exhausted, because it's too much. It's too much. Because the truth is, you can't connect with everyone, and you shouldn't try to. But you should connect with some. Right? We should connect with some, but we cannot connect with everyone. Because really... In attempting to do so, to connect with everyone, what we're really trying to do is to live beyond our limitations. Because as humans, we are finite beings, meaning we are not infinite, but we're created with limitations. They're hardwired into the way that we are. And from a biblical perspective, these limitations are designed for our good. They're meant for our flourishing. And the best life isn't the one where we somehow rise up and live beyond our limitations and just achieve more than we were ever supposed to be able to. But the best life is where we recognize our limitations for the gift that they are and we stop believing the lie that we can and should live beyond them. And really the best evidence for that is that it's exactly what Jesus modeled for us. Because if you kind of break it down, he was fully God, right? Meaning he actually was infinite. He was not finite like this. He had a never-ending capacity and has a never-ending capacity to connect with others relationally. There are no limitations. But when he took on our humanity during his life here on earth, he submitted himself to our human limitations. He lived within our finite nature. And what we see is that he was not best friends with everyone. He didn't connect at the most extreme level of depth, at least not on a regular basis, with everyone. He didn't do that. But with his life, he gave us a picture of what relational health looks like. And a significant piece of that is the understanding that there are different categories of friendship and there are limitations to how many people can fit inside of those categories. Meaning you can't have 50 best friends. And that reality isn't a curse but it's a gift when we're able to live inside of it. And so this is the part where I need you to start flexing some of those visual uh, imagination skills. So I want you to picture uh, an, a small circle, a small circle right in the middle, right? Because 
during the course of his ministry, those three years that we read about in the Gospels, he had three best friends. And this is the circle, three people that are inside of the circle for him relationally, that he was closer to than anyone else, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus, he was not available to everyone always during that time. But I think you can bet pretty well that if there was a phone at the time, the people that he would have picked up the phone for at just about any time was these three. He was available to them because they were in his inner circle. And for us, these are the people that know you, that know you well. There's a a level of accountability here. And these are the people that you talk to about the decisions that you're making and what you're navigating in life. These are the people who are there for you. In in the language of our city, these are the people who will pick you up from O'Hare regardless of whatever time your flight gets in or takes off, which you know that's a short list. You can't have many of those. Probably two, uh, maybe three at max. And that's the inner circle. And and then beyond that, right now, this is where we we extend, we add to the drawing. There's a circle uh, that is larger around the inner one. This is the second ring. And so the inner circle is closest to friends. This is good friends, the second ring, uh, where Jesus, he had the 12 disciples as a whole. Uh, The other nine making up the rest of the camp, in addition to Peter, James, and John, who are also good friends, people that he was with on a regular basis, people that he did life with. They're just kind of one step removed from that closest of inner circles, but their lives are still very much intertwined, right? About eight to ten, maybe even a dozen is probably a good number for this. And then moving beyond this, there's an even broader community that we see with Jesus. He had the three, he had the 12, and then there was a group of 72 disciples as well that he was invested in. There was a broader community where I think the way this one works is you're kind of, you're happy to see one another and you know certain things about each other, but you're not really on the inside of each other's lives. You still care for each other and you check up on certain things and pray for one another and just in general, you want the best for them and you enjoy the chance to connect when it's there, but getting time together on a regular basis, just even on a day-to-day basis, it's just not a strong priority. And then once you move beyond that, outside of those three rings, you're kind of just in the area of friendly acquaintances, people that you enjoy, uh, but you don't really see all that often necessarily or know that much about, and that's fine. Because I think the fact that Jesus had people in every single one of these categories It shows us that these categories aren't inherently bad, that there's nothing wrong about having people in every one of these because they're intended for our good. And having a sense of clarity over who fits where is important for us, especially when it comes to making sure that you do have somebody in that inner ring, right, in that closest of circles because you need to have somebody there. But then beyond that, sometimes it's helpful to clarify, at least for yourself, when people are on the other side of certain lines, which means you still like and enjoy them. It's not that you need to uh, just like kind of hate them or put them out of your life altogether. It's just, it's that it's, you're recognizing that it's okay if you don't have a super deep connection with them because you're reserving your relational capacity for the other people who are in your inner circles. And the truth is they need to do the same. And so this is what relational health looks like in terms of friendship, which we can clearly see is not a picture where you connect with everyone, but it's a picture where you connect with some and you connect with them deeply. And then we have people, relationships at varying levels of depth, these different categories. 
And so that's the first myth, right? Um, Jump into the second one now. Myth number two. Friends are friends forever. Friends are friends forever, right? If you saw the Friends reunion, maybe this one rings true for you. Maybe this one feels right. But uh, this one, it actually builds off of the former in that a lot of times, once someone has moved into one of the inner circles, right, either the innermost one or even kind of the, the wider one, if we've been this close with them at a certain point, it can feel like it's wrong to let that relationship slip further away. We feel this sense of responsibility or, or even an obligation to maintain and keep up that friendship, to keep some sense of contact, which isn't bad. It's just that at a certain point, it becomes unrealistic. And it places this unnecessary relational burden on ourselves. Because these different circles, the point is that they're not static, but they're always in flux and they're constantly changing, especially as the circumstances of your own life is changing. So if you have one best friend from childhood, just kind of breaking this down as it, it often flows through life, right? The person that, uh, you, you know, you're friends with them since you were in diapers or you went to kindergarten together and they're your best friend growing up. And then at a certain point along the way, you move schools in, in middle school and then going through high school, these are your absolute closest friends. And then, uh, you know, you get into college and these are your closest friends there and then you graduate go different directions, different cities, and you meet someone at work and someone at uh, your church who's a close friend. And, and continually, throughout all the seasons of your life, you're bringing people into these inner circles. And if at the same time, people aren't also moving out, the relational burden of trying to keep up with everyone at this level, it just becomes crushing. It becomes unrealistic. Because the categories aren't static, but they're changing. And we see this scripturally. One especially poignant example of this is in the book of Ruth. How in the first chapter, the woman named Naomi, she moves to Moab with her husband and her two sons. They're, uh, they're Israelites, but they move outside of the land. There's a famine, and so they're going in hopes of finding food. And when they're in the land of Moab, uh, her two sons get married to two women named Orpah and Ruth. Shortly afterwards, tragically, her husband and both of her sons die, and she decides to return back home to Israel. And at first, both of her daughters-in-law, both Ruth and Orpah, they want to go with her. But she tells them, no, you're not coming with me. My life is over. Don't throw your lot in with me because you're still young and you have the chance to marry and to have a future, which in that culture was really the only way forward for a woman. And so as a widow with no close family, and no sons, Naomi was in a terrible position, and she didn't want that for them. So she tells them, you're not coming with me. You're going to stay here. And this is where the famous response from Ruth comes in, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. She says this in response. It says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So she's saying, you're in my inner circle, and nothing is going to change that. Nothing is ever going to take that away, which is a beautiful thing, right? However, Orpah doesn't make the same commitment. 
she does go back and she stays in Moab and returns to her family and attempts to marry again. And the thing is, as heroic and as moving as Ruth's decision is, Orpah's decision wasn't wrong. There was nothing wrong about her staying and letting these relationships go. Because the truth is, rather than friends are friends forever, it would be better to say that God will bring people in and out of our lives. That God will bring people both in and out of our lives. Because even with Jesus and the disciples, we see this, that he brought them together for a season. For three years, they were together through thick and thin, day in and day out. And they were close friends but that didn't last forever. Because we see even in the book of Acts that eventually God scatters them, sends them in different directions where they go on to form new relationships. And so he brought them together for a season in a way that was unique and that was special and that was a gift. But then he moves them on in different directions, onto new relationships. And the same is true for us, that God will bring people both in and out of our lives. And when he brings them in, it's an incredible gift. And by no means is something accidental because even the friendships we enjoy in certain seasons of life, they're all wrapped up in God's providence in his ultimate plan that all of our lives are a part of. So the friends you do have and the friends you've had in different seasons of life, they're a gift to be thankful for. And when God brings people out of your life, when you choose different schools, when someone takes a job and they move to a different city, whatever it happens to be, that's okay. It's not a bad thing for someone to move from one of the inner circles to the outside. What's important is just having clarity for ourselves on who actually is in the inside. Can we actually throw, do we have it? Can we throw it up, the, the circles? No worries if we don't. I think the, there we go, nice. So little self-reflection is, is what you imagined as good as that, so. <laughs> By the way, I can't take credit for that. This was uh, Carlos. There was a lot of help in this message. Carlos helped with this. And uh, Melanie Castaneda, Wes Craig were very instrumental in shaping the content of this. So can we just kind of give it up for the contributions to this? Thank you, thank you. I don't know why I'm saying thank you. It was literally like thanking the other people. But <laughs> yeah, okay, third and final myth. Um, Loving your friends well means acceptance and enabling. Loving your friends well means acceptance and enabling. The underlying question here uh, underneath this myth is really, what does it mean to be a good friend? What does it mean to love your friends well? And I think one of the most common errors is this right here, that sometimes we find ourselves thinking or even just feeling that it's better to accept our friends as they are, and even if they're making decisions that are harmful to themselves and to others, we think that it's somehow better to just kind of accept them in that and even to enable them in those poor decisions than it ever is to actually bring up the fact that we disagree. A lot of times we'd just rather bury our concerns so we can encourage them positively in a way that feels positive, even if we're encouraging them in something that's negative. And there's probably many different reasons for this, partly a fear of rejection and what will happen if we do speak up. There's kind of this people-pleasing tendency and this fear of, of losing or somehow ruining the relationship. That, uh, that, that fear of conflict, I think, is something that a lot of us have. And to some extent, I think there's also this sense in which our understanding of what a friend is, that's just not in our job description. 
it's not our job to, to challenge our friends and to speak truth to them in certain areas. And so we just say that's, that's their thing, and I'm here to support and accept, and, and that's just how it is. And, and there are probably many different reasons for why we lean into this. But I just want to say to that tendency in general that it's been said that the opposite of love isn't hate, but apathy, indifference. That the opposite of love doesn't mean that you have to just loathe another person's existence altogether. But the opposite of love is that when you see someone in a situation that's bad for them and you don't even care enough to mention it, that you can't even be bothered to speak up for a moment, that that is the opposite of love. Not hatred, but the unwillingness to even lift a finger for a friend who's in trouble. Because love, the way that we see it biblically, love is willing to work through difficulty and to challenge and to seek a person's best, even at the risk that they may not be willing to hear it. But for their sake, it's worth it for their good. And we see this with Jesus. In his life, we see the most pure and selfless example of what love looks like in friendship. And it's not a picture of someone who enables others to remain in their mess. He doesn't condemn them. But he also doesn't just leave them there. Because he was constantly challenging and calling out the disciples in the areas where they were going astray. But, uh, and we have other examples like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. But, but even beyond those, there's one example in particular that, that really speaks to this issue uh, very well. And it, coming from Mark chapter 10 where the story is Jesus is, is going about his ministry. Going from kind of town to town and, and preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God in each village and and as he's about to leave one particular village, this young man kind of rushes up to him who's very wealthy uh, and kneels down before him in a posture of respect and asks him this question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by beginning to recite the Ten Commandments, saying don't steal, don't uh, lie, don't, don't do all these things. But before he can kind of finish rattling off the list, the, the young man interrupts him and says, all of these things I've done since my youth. I've kept these my entire life. And then Jesus' response to him comes in verse 21, and, and it's particularly telling. It says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus understood the flaw in this young man's heart, that he was finding his entire identity in his wealth. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. And the response that flows out of that love is not one of just acceptance and enabling but it's one of speaking the truth in love. He challenges him in exactly the way he needed to be challenged. And, and I know that we don't necessarily get to see the end of the story. We, we see what happens immediately, but we don't know what took place with the rest of his life. But, but we see that the response that flows from love isn't one of just acceptance and enabling, but it's one of speaking the truth in love. Because that's what it means to love your friends well. And again, our stumbling block so often when it comes to this is that our default is just kind of this apathetic response that if a friendship is going to require this much of us, 
if it's going to require this much discomfort and kind of leaning into hard conversations, if it's going to take all that, then it's really just not worth it. Or to put some cleaner words on it, what we're really saying is that if friendship isn't easy, then it's just not worth it. If this friendship isn't easy, then it's just not worth it. And we'll just find another friend who's maybe a little less uh, maintenance. And to that, I'd just say, thank God and thank goodness that Jesus didn't treat us the same. Right? Thank, thank God that if it's not easy, it's not worth it wasn't the credo of Jesus' life. Because what the gospel tells us is that he understood exactly what our situation was, what our issue was, and to what degree sin had separated us from God and from everything that we were created for. And when faced with that reality of what it would require to provide us with a remedy, he didn't just shrink back. He didn't just bury his concerns and keep them to himself and just decide to look the other way and say, that's not my responsibility. But instead, he took on our humanity. He gave his life on the cross in our place and for our sins. He entered into death itself in order to bring about our redemption and the restoration of our relationship with God that we were always created for. He did all of that not because it was easy, but because love is willing even when it's not. And the same love that brought about our redemption is what should shape the kind of friend that we are today. A friend who connects and is available not to all, but to some. To those that God has intentionally brought into your life for that purpose and for this season. And to be a friend who doesn't follow a policy of non-engagement, but a friend who seeks your best even when it's difficult. Because that's a friend who loves and that kind of friendship is an incredible gift to receive and to give. Because ultimately, it's one of the fundamental relationships that we were created for. And so to that end, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that in your life, uh, you entered into our limitations. You showed us what it means to to live within our limitations and to see them as a gift meant for our good in which we can find flourishing. And we thank you that uh, we can look at the different seasons of our lives and the people that you bring in and out as a gift in that uh, we can enjoy those relationships. And um, yeah, we ask that you would, uh, we ask that you would continue to cultivate us as friends. Help us to be better friends. Help us to love our friends well, the ones that you've brought into our lives in this particular season. And uh, yeah, and would you continue to shape us and grow us and help us to lean into the flourishing that we find in the relationships that you have given to us in each and every season. In Jesus' name, amen.